0: Come to order. Good morning, everyone. This is the first in a series of public hearings the committee will be holding as part of the House's impeachment inquiry.
1: Wednesday was the first day in the public phase of the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Two important witnesses testified in front of lawmakers.
0: And with that, I now recognize the witnesses
1: William Taylor, the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and George Kent. Deputy Assistant Secretary at the State Department. These televised hearings included several contentious moments between lawmakers, bickering over time, process, and questions. But the hearings also revealed meaningful insight into the facts provided by key witnesses, including a new revelation previously unknown to the public about a telephone conversation between Trump and U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Somlund. So, What's that all about? And what else did we learn from the very first in an upcoming parade of public impeachment hearings? We're going to guide you through what happened today, and we'll be your guide through this whole ongoing process. So stay tuned. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. After a long day of watching and reporting on news out of the hearing, I sat down with my colleague Elise Viebeck, a political enterprise and investigations reporter here at The Post. I wanted her to walk me through a few of the major moments from the hearings. But first, I asked her to explain a little bit of what we saw in terms of process, since this hearing worked a bit differently than House committee hearings usually work. After opening statements, each party had 45 minutes for uninterrupted
2: questions. I asked Elise first how the Democrats used that time. It's a good question. Uh, The Democrats started with House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff asking a couple of questions, particularly about the news that broke from William Taylor's testimony. And then he yielded to a lawyer for the committee who proceeded to conduct uh, lines of questioning that had to do with what Taylor and Kent had told the inquiry in their previous depositions. The Democrats feel that they're in a good position to make the case that Trump did pursue this alleged quid pro quo. And so the lawyer for the committee, Dan Goldman, was able to use the previous depositions and ask Taylor and Kent to very methodically lay out their case, say how they learned certain pieces of information, where they recorded it, who they told And slowly, he was able to sort of unfold the narratives that Democrats believe is true. So the
1: use of a lawyer seemed particularly effective for Democrats.
2: Absolutely. And I think that Dan Goldman has been pivotal in the closed-door depositions, asking a lot of the important questions. Now, the Republicans had... A lawyer do the same thing, and he has been equally as important behind closed doors. Yeah. Tell me more about how the Republicans use their 45 minutes. So it, it's an interesting contrast because I think it shows the differing positions of the two parties relative to the information that's coming out. So Democrats feel like with every new revelation, their case for the alleged quid pro quo gets stronger. And uh, for Republicans, they feel that the whole thing is has been an unfair inquiry intended to eject Trump from office. And so they were a little bit more diverse in terms of their questions. They asked questions about a lot of different topics, many of which the witnesses said they could not answer because they didn't have direct knowledge of what the Republicans were asking about. So, for example, uh, the Republican lawyer, Steve Castor, at one point asked about Hunter Biden and the energy company in Ukraine where he served on the board. And the witnesses had to say, we don't know Hunter Biden. We don't know about his qualifications to serve on this board. And the line of questioning sort of had to end there. What's Important to remember about what Republicans were doing on Wednesday is they knew that the president was very likely watching this entire hearing unfold. And they wanted to make the case as strongly as they could to impress him and to show him that they are loyal. And so asking about certain of these debunked or disproved conspiracy theories related to the Bidens was in service of that larger goal.
1: Would that also serve as an explanation for why the questioning portion from the lawyer was much shorter than the Democrats and the opening statement, if you will, from Nunes or the second opening statement in this 45 minutes was much longer than what we saw from Schiff in
2: that same allotted time? Absolutely. And you could see a difference even in the tone of uh, the lawmakers and the lawyers. The Democrats uh, were much calmer in a way, much more methodical. The Republicans tended to be slightly uh, more dramatic. More raised voices. Uh, they knew uh, that this was a performance of of sorts, and they certainly wanted to underscore something that is important to note, which is that George Kent and Bill Taylor are people who have not been at the center of the events that we were talking about on Wednesday. They are people who who tended to hear about things secondhand. And so Republicans feel like that's very important for the public to know, and they feel like it bolsters their case that there's no there there. So part of the Republican
1: strategy, it seemed today, was to repeatedly interrupt the process as Schiff had laid it out. They kept saying, I have a parliamentary inquiry. Mr. Chairman, before we hear from the witnesses, I have a parliamentary inquiry.
0: Parliamentary inquiry, are you seriously interrupting our time Uh, here? What is that?
1: What
2: is a parliamentary inquiry, and why were Republicans doing that repeatedly? So a parliamentary inquiry gives a lawmaker the chance to interrupt a proceeding to ask the chair a clarifying question about what's going on. And so you might make a parliamentary inquiry to ask about the length of a debate or why a certain party is speaking. In Wednesday's case, the Republicans continue to raise these inquiries, one might say, as a potential delaying tactic, but also as another messaging effort. They use those opportunities to make that same case that the Democrats have conducted. A, uh, an unfair proceeding that has been largely behind closed doors. The Republicans are very interested in getting the initial intelligence community whistleblower to testify. They made that case several times, so they weren't typical parliamentary inquiries. You can read them more as messaging efforts.
1: Wednesday's hearing, though, of course, was the first in in the series of upcoming hearings. Does it, having been the first, mean that more of these interruptions occurred, or is this a strategy that we think we'll see the Republicans take going forward in in the upcoming hearings?
2: I think in future hearings, we will see Republicans employ this strategy what they want to do is is take advantage of every moment they have in this spotlight to defend the president and to try to prove and argue that this whole idea of the alleged quid pro quo is nonsense. And so if if a parliamentary inquiry gives them another chance to speak, they will take that opportunity. All right, let's move
1: on from process to some of the meat and potatoes of what we saw today. I want to focus first on an understanding of who these men are and why they were important to the Ukraine-U.S. story. So let's start with George Kent. Who is this man? Why was he here on Wednesday?
2: So uh, George Kent is a deputy assistant secretary at the State Department, and he oversees Europe and Eurasian affairs. So basically, this means that he's a very high-level official who oversees all U.S. policy toward Ukraine. And because of his deep experience in the department, he has knowledge that is relevant to what happened uh, in this saga. And then what about Bill Taylor? Who is Bill Taylor, and, and why was he there on Wednesday? Bill Taylor uh, is the current acting ambassador to Ukraine. He was also the previous ambassador to Ukraine in the 2000s. He was asked to come in and replace the ousted uh, ambassador, Marie Ivanovich, this year. And he was someone that a lot of people were communicating with after the July 25th phone call between Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He's someone who is sort of at the center of several lines of communication about everything that was happening. And that's why Democrats wanted his testimony on Wednesday. Let's move on to what I'll call the highlight reel. Let's start with the most significant takeaway. In his
1: opening remarks, Bill Taylor revealed an as yet unknown piece of this story. So let's listen to that clip.
0: Last Friday, a member of my staff told me of events that occurred on July 26th. While Ambassador Volker and, I, Volker and I visited the front, this a member of my staff accompanied Ambassador Sondland, Ambassador Sondland met with Mr. Yermak. Following that meeting, in the presence of my staff, at a restaurant, Ambassador Sondland called President Trump and told him of his meetings in Kyiv. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Following the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for.
1: So essentially,
2: more succinctly, what is Taylor sharing here? Taylor is saying that last week, one of his aides, someone who works at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, told him that he was present for a phone conversation between EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland and the president on July 26th of this year. And the aide told Taylor this. That he was in a restaurant with Sondland after a meeting with a high-ranking Ukrainian official. And we have to remember the timing. This is the day after Trump asked Ukrainian President Zelensky to initiate investigations of the Biden family. That's that big phone call that we keep hearing about. So the day afterward, Sondland is in a restaurant and one of Bill Taylor's aides overhears him speaking with Trump on his cell phone. And the aide told Taylor that he heard Trump ask about the status of, quote-unquote, the investigations. So that's a big deal. That suddenly shows us, if this is true, that Trump was inquiring about the status of the probes that he had pressured Zelensky for the day before. Now, the other thing that the aide told Taylor was that after the phone call concluded, Sondland told him that Trump cared more about investigations into the Bidens than other policy issues related to Ukraine. Again, another detail that, if it's true, bolsters Democrats' case about this alleged quid pro quo. Right. So it doesn't look good for the president, but it also doesn't necessarily show clear evidence of a quid pro quo. That's right. It just shows that this was something that may have been on Trump's mind. Uh, It shows that he was in close contact with Gordon Sondland about it. Uh, And we should note that on Wednesday afternoon when Trump was asked about this, he denied any recollection of that phone call. And he has tried to put distance between himself and Sondland in the last week or so. Can you explain why,
1: given that Bill Taylor had already testified behind closed doors, we're just finding out about this incident now?
2: That is a great question and one that I know that reporters want answers to. The fact is, we don't know, but that aide is going to testify later in the week behind closed doors, and I'm sure that both sides will be asking that question. Why did you not tell this story earlier? According to Taylor, the aide told him that story last Friday. So that was quite long after Taylor gave his closed door deposition. And I think it is fair to ask why the aide took this long to volunteer this information. One point that Republicans
1: have made and continue to make in this hearing is that Ukrainian President Zelensky has said that he didn't feel any pressure from Trump to investigate the Bidens or to carry out actions in exchange for the release of military aid. I want to play a clip where a Republican congressman, Ratcliffe, questions Taylor around this particular point.
0: The Ukrainian president stood in front of the world press and repeatedly, consistently, over and over again, interview after interview said he had no knowledge of military aid being withheld, meaning no quid pro quo, no pressure, no demands, no threats, no blackmail, nothing corrupt. And unlike the first 45 minutes that we heard from the Democrats today, that's not secondhand information. It's not hearsay. It's not what someone overheard Ambassador Sondland say. That was his direct testimony. Ambassador Taylor, do you have any evidence to assert that President Zelensky was lying to the world press when he said those things?
1: Why are Republicans leaning on this point about Zelensky's public statement about the process and the call and the absence of pressure from Trump?
2: Republicans want to make the case that because the Ukrainians didn't know about the hold on aid right when it happened, that that undercuts the idea of this alleged quid pro quo. So one thing that you heard Republicans say to Bill Taylor over and over is that he had several meetings with Zelensky after the July 25th phone call, where Zelensky did not tell him that he was facing pressure. And Bill Taylor acknowledges that that's the truth. And Republicans feel like that's an important point in their case. They argue that if there was pressure, and if there was a true quid pro quo, then Zelensky would have told American diplomats and shared the discomfort he was feeling. Does the suggestion by these Republicans that perhaps
1: the U.S. diplomats are, you know, indirectly calling President Zelensky a liar. Does that have larger implications on the foreign policy
2: stage? Well, of course, during a hearing like this, Taylor is going to be keeping his job first in mind. He is the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and his job is to keep relationships with Ukrainian officials positive, upbeat, and productive. And so, of course, calling the the president of Ukraine a liar would not serve those goals. But we should emphasize that Taylor said he had no reason to doubt what the president said. And Democrats don't necessarily contest that either. Uh, I think when the Ukrainians found out about the hold on aid is a major issue and the two parties disagree about what it means. Another
1: moment that was striking during this hearing was when Taylor was asked by the Democrats lawyer, Daniel Goldman, if Taylor had ever seen anything like this in history. Let's look at that.
2: Ambassador Taylor, in your decades of military service and and diplomatic service representing the United States around the world, have you ever seen another example of foreign aid conditioned on the personal or political interests of the president of the United States?
0: No, Mr. Goldman, I have not.
1: We know from his testimony that this unusual moment in history alarmed Taylor. Did Taylor provide more insight into why this situation was concerning?
2: He has had a long and distinguished career as an American diplomat around the world. And so to ask him whether he had ever seen a situation like this before carries a lot of weight. And, of course, Taylor said, no, he hadn't. It's a way of communicating the gravity of what Taylor believes happened, that it was very rare, that this isn't something typical that American presidents would engage in. That although there may be certain conditions applied to the receipt of military aid, investigating domestic political opponents is not typically one of them. That's what Taylor wanted to say. And it works against some
1: of the White House strategy of suggesting that this was all a normal
2: interaction between Trump and Zelensky. It was a perfect call. There was nothing there. Right. So Trump has insisted that this was a perfect call. And I think that in Trump's mind, this is the way that presidents should go about their business. We've heard from aides of his, deputies of his, who said that he thinks about this as a businessman. He thinks that applying pressure right before giving someone money is the way to do business, even if it's diplomatic business.
1: That really is a nice segue to the final clip that I want to play from this hearing. And This is one of the the later questions that was asked to Kent and, and Taylor in which they both agreed when a Democratic lawmaker asked them this key question about diplomacy. Let's listen to this.
0: When American leaders ask foreign governments to investigate their potential rivals, doesn't that make it harder for us to advocate on behalf of those Democratic values?
2: I believe it makes it more difficult for our diplomatic representatives overseas to carry out those policy goals, yes.
0: How is that, sir?
2: Well, there's an issue of credibility. They hear diplomats on the ground saying one thing, and they hear uh, other U.S. leaders saying something else.
0: Ambassador Taylor, would you agree with that, sir? I would. Is there anything you'd like to add about how it might make it more difficult for you to do your job, sir? Our credibility um, is based on... A respect for the United States. And if we damage that respect, then it hurts our credibility and makes it more difficult for, our, for us to do our jobs.
1: As we get caught up in this entire impeachment inquiry process, it feels like this was a moment where we sort of stepped back for a second and distilled the reason why these men
2: felt that some actions in U.S.-Ukraine policy raised concerns for them. It was a big moment because, again, it reminds us of the stakes here for American diplomats around the world. And it it reminds us of something that Taylor himself talked about in his closed door testimony, which is this idea that there were two channels of diplomacy with Ukraine going on. This is one of his main conclusions and his main observations, that Trump empowered people outside of normal diplomatic channels, like his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, to conduct policy not in partnership with but sort of apart from the normal diplomatic establishment. And what Taylor is saying here is that that is confusing for partners of the U.S. around the world. They don't know whether to deal with allies of President Trump who have unusual power to set policy, the kind of power you wouldn't see necessarily in another administration, Or to deal with the diplomats who they've established relationships with for years. It is confusing. And I think that's the point that Taylor was trying to hammer home. It's harder to do business as an American diplomat if you're being undercut by other players. And they were speaking
1: specifically about the relationship between U.S. and Ukraine. But does this reflect a larger U.S. foreign policy issue under the Trump administration?
2: Yes, I think advocates for the State Department uh, would note that there are many unfilled positions under the Trump administration, that Trump has not necessarily been uh, the biggest advocate for traditional American diplomacy. He ran on the platform of really shaking things up both domestically uh, and in foreign policy. And so I do think that the stakes are very high, that the diplomatic establishment would believe that, and that this is a reminder that Trump really has introduced a very different way of doing business. So I want to zoom
1: out from sort of the room as things happen today and head over to the White House. The president is the person at the center of this inquiry. How was he responding to the hearings today?
2: So the president had a couple of different responses.
0: You're talking about the witch hunt? Is that what you mean? Is that what you're talking about? I, I hear it's a joke. I haven't watched. I haven't watched for one minute because I've been with the president, which is much more important as far as I'm concerned.
2: He said he wasn't watching the hearings, uh, which we don't know whether that's true or not. We do know that he was tweeting quite a bit. And the what he was tweeting uh, were Republican accounts from Capitol Hill. It was sort of a coordinated messaging operation on Wednesday to highlight certain clips that Republicans felt served their purposes. So the, the president's feed was full of video. Uh, but when it came time for him to answer to the major piece of news that broke from the hearing— Trump once again said he had no recollection of that July 26th call with Sondland, uh, that that that's, again, second or third hand information that he doesn't trust and that no one should trust either. As we look ahead to these forthcoming hearings, it seems like Sondland, who's scheduled
1: to appear next week, could be the most significant to this inquiry, given what we learned on Wednesday. Would that be your assessment or is there someone else whose testimony we should be paying close
2: attention to? I think Sondland's testimony will be crucial, and people will be looking to see how he responds to questions from both Democrats and Republicans. Republicans will be in a bit of a difficult position because he did walk back his testimony that there was no quid pro quo, which was a major development in the inquiry and, frankly, a, a win for Democrats. The per, the people whose testimony may be even more important than Sondland's are those uh, like, for example, John Bolton. Rudy Giuliani himself, Mick Mulvaney, Trump's uh, chief of staff, these are people who uh, are not necessarily expected to testify in this inquiry. They are resisting uh, subpoenas, at least a handful of those people are. But I think Mm -hmm. their testimony would be even more crucial because they had even uh, deeper relationships with the president, more interactions with him, and could shed more light on what he was doing and saying behind the scenes. All right, Elise, thank you so much for joining us after a very long day. Thanks, Allison.
1: This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry in one place, including the latest from Can He Do That, Post Reports, and The Daily 202's Big Idea. Updated whenever news happens. Subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the charming Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.